0: Welcome to the September 8th edition of Global Dialogue, the International Affairs Speakers Program of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. I'm Patrick Ryan. This evening, we will welcome Professor Thomas Schwartz, friend of the World Affairs Council and author of a great new book on Henry Kissinger. More about that shortly. First, let me tell you who we are at the World Affairs Council since we have so many new viewers this evening. The Council is a unique organization in Tennessee. It's an independent, nonpartisan, educational nonprofit association that works to inform the community, especially young people about what's going on in the world. We do that through community programs like this webinar series about two or three a week. And we have an educational outreach program for students around the state. We even have students from Georgia and Alabama involved, or as we call them, Baja, Tennessee. Let me suggest that you check our calendar at TNWAC to check out the dozen or so programs in our Election 2020 project, too numerous to mention now, but this Thursday at 5:30 p.m. we'll open the China the uh, Election 2020 series with our China panel, which includes five fantastic China experts. We're a small council that has always done well in bringing great programs to our community. But with the dawn of the age of Zoom, we've been able to reach more people and bring more high quality speakers to the community. In fact, we now have people from around the country who have become regular TNWAC members and viewers uh, of these many programs. That's what I'd like you to do now. Become a regular viewer and become a member. Visit tnwac.org join while you're watching this exceptional program and become a member. Any new TNWAC members this week will be in for a drawing for this wonderful book, a copy of Henry Kissinger and American Power. So please support what we do by joining or making a contribution. That's tnwac.org. Thanks for that. Before we uh, start our book talk, let me uh, introduce one of our partners for the program, uh, Parnassus Books of Nashville. Here is uh, Nikki Kaufman, Director of Events. As Pat said, I'm Nikki Kaufman, Director of Events at Parnassus. We're delighted to share tonight's event featuring author and historian Professor Thomas Schwartz with you. Just as a reminder, you can order signed copies of Henry Kissinger and American Power from Parnassus. Um, They'll share the link to purchase in the Facebook comments. Uh, We're so pleased to partner with the Tennessee World Affairs Council on tonight's event. We appreciate the work they do in bringing important international affairs books to our community's attention and for the work they do in promoting global affairs awareness. Tonight, Tom will be joined in conversation by the Tennessee World Affairs Council's Pat Ryan. I'm so pleased to turn it over to Tom and Pat. Thank you, Nikki. Uh, Parnassus is is just a a terrific uh, organization, and we can't wait for the doors to open again uh, in any case, uh, everyone should be reading more books now that we're doing less mingling. Uh, so check Parnassusbooks.net and you can order to or pick up at the door or uh, delivery to your door. So um, you might uh, start out with, uh, with this book that uh, we're going to hear more of uh, tonight. Uh, Tom I uh, I hope that I've done a, a good enough job in plugging the book so far and and I'm sure everybody wow. after after your talk will be uh, anxious to get a copy of it It's uh, my great pleasure now to uh, introduce uh, our guest this evening, uh, Professor Thomas Schwartz. Uh, Complete bio is on our website, but let me uh, just say that uh, Thomas Schwartz is a distinguished professor of history at Vanderbilt, where he specializes in the history of the foreign relations of the United States. He has served on the U.S. State Department's Historical Advisory Committee and as president of the Society for Historians of American Foreign Relations. Henry Kissinger and American Power is his third book. Professor Schwartz, uh, welcome, and thanks for being with us tonight.
1: Well, thank you so much, uh, Pat, for organizing this and um, having me on the program.
0: Happy to uh, to have you here. And I I should just say that uh, uh, you've, uh, you've you and your friends and relatives and colleagues have, have blown the doors off our uh, Zoom room tonight. Uh, hope, hopefully, the uh, Facebook Live uh, carryover room is, is working out well. Um, we, uh, we really appreciate everyone, uh, Vanderbilt, uh, cousins, nephews, uh, colleagues, and, and, and otherwise joining us tonight. Uh, I should mention that uh, our Zoom attendees can start adding questions uh, anytime in the tab on your Zoom screen at the bottom of the Q&A tab. So uh, please, we're looking forward to some, some great questions tonight. Uh, for those of you watching on the Facebook Live, you can send your questions via Twitter. Uh, just address those at TNWAC and we will field those questions as well. Uh, professor Schwartz, before we get uh, into the book, tell us a little bit about your background. How did you come to be a, a distinguished professor of history at Vanderbilt University? Uh, sometimes
1: I'm not sure, Pat. Um, I started off in Rochester, New York, a city that unfortunately is, is in the news for the wrong reasons now, but is a, is a wonderful place to live. I'm, I'm still a Yankee in that sense, even though I've been in Tennessee for 30 years, as, as you also know, uh, coming from New York. Um, my parents were um, a World War II depression generation. My father served in the 82nd Airborne. Uh, my mom was just an incredible reader, um, uh, determined in uh, promoting education. I was one of seven, a middle child. Uh, they made sure though that we got to school and I, I attended an excellent uh, Jesuit high school in Rochester. Um, I was fortunate enough to um, get a region scholarship, go to Columbia, um, had an opportunity to study abroad for a couple of years in Oxford, and then uh, did a PhD at Harvard University, which was Kissinger's stomping grounds for so many years. Um, and then in uh, 1990, Vanderbilt was the best job in the country. I really didn't know much about Vanderbilt, but there weren't many jobs and it was the best one. And I was lucky enough to get it. And I've been here for 30 years and very happy um, to be a part of Vanderbilt, to uh, have absolutely uh, a, a incredible history department. and. Um, the university has risen in uh, so many great ways over these uh, last uh, 30 years.
0: Well, we're, we're, Glad to have you here in the Nashville community, and uh, glad that you're uh, in, been involved in the World Affairs Council, uh, our, our in-person events and uh, and some of our webinars. Uh, let's let's start out, Tom, with uh, your description, uh, some remarks about uh, about the book, what uh, what you sought to tell in uh, the story of Henry Kissinger, as as you've noted in uh, in some of your writing about the book and and some of the the things I've read about it that. Uh, uh, I think in your introduction, you said you didn't seek to write the authoritative history of Henry Kissinger, uh, but rather just a, a, a piece of, uh, of his complex story. So, so tell us uh, something about the book. Okay. Um, the book came
1: uh, about um, as an offer from a, a, a fellow historian, Louis Mazur, who told me about a series that Hill and Wang, the publisher was doing in which they were hoping to um, uh, provide the opportunity for people to study topics in American history through biography. Uh, The idea was biography is just a very appealing genre. People like it. They they like to read about people. But the idea was to tell a broader story about some significant aspect of, of, of history. And the biography they were looking for, they were looking for someone to take on a biography that would teach something about American foreign relations, American foreign policy, America's role in the world. And so I got the, uh, I was asked to write a prospectus and uh, the idea was to to figure out a person whose life could really tell something of that story. And even though Henry Kissinger wasn't born in the United States, um, he still in his life, his life story I thought really offered the opportunity for a prism into understanding America's rise to world power and the more I've thought about it the more I've thought he, this is a man who's had a public career that's lasted more than a cent- more than half a century almost six decades in which he has been in the public realm um and I think I was trying to in 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 looking at Kissinger and and in exploring this try to write a book that would be accessible both to non-scholars but would still make a scholarly contribution and trying to walk that particular tightrope was, was part of the challenge of writing the book. Um, Kissinger is known uh, to most people uh, in, in, in the field of foreign policy as being a, an advocate for realpolitik, which is a sort of German word meaning essentially a type of realist foreign policy, a, a foreign policy that, that is directed not at moral or idealistic considerations, but at uh, almost a cold-blooded pursuit of the national interest, a pursuit of security and power for the country. And that does describe some of his writings. It does describe some of what he's advocated. It's not a wrong understanding of Kissinger, but it's incomplete. And so I do think what my contribution to the extent, given that there are so many books about Henry Kissinger, I think my contribution is to understand Kissinger as someone whose career tells us something about the deep interconnection between American domestic politics, partisan political politics, but domestic politics in general, and foreign policy. And that in Kissinger's career, we can, sort of, we can see something of this intertwining of the two. Um, Kissinger loved to portray himself as someone who was above politics. Um, I, I mentioned early on uh, in my uh, introduction Uh, that one of the things I found in the Vanderbilt television news archive, which was another way I was trying to make a contribution by using that source, I found an interview Kissinger gave at the 1972 Republican uh, political convention. And he was asked whether if uh, a peace settlement could be negotiated in Vietnam before the 1972 election, if that would help the president's political chances in the election. And Kissinger responded, the president never talks to me about domestic politics. That was nonsense. We know because the Nixon tapes tell us that uh, Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger often discussed domestic politics, that they were aware very much of the interconnection between what the president did in foreign policy and its political effect at home. Um, that political understanding, which Kissinger developed and, and uh, recognized, was a key to his power and influence, but it was also it's, it's also a key to understanding how foreign policy is actually made in the United States as opposed to perhaps more theoretical ways in which we think about how foreign policy or geopolitics uh, should be determined. Kissinger and Nixon, and here I give uh, as much credit to Nixon as to Kissinger, were extraordinarily successful in their first term, not at everything, but uh, particularly in what I call the trifecta of 1972 in which Kissinger and Nixon, Nixon visits China a country that the United States had had no diplomatic relations for almost 20 years. This was a a stunning development and it was one that had enormous political impact in the United States. Um, Not only in that year does he visit China, but he also negotiates the first major nuclear arms agreement with the Soviet Union and initiates the policy of detente with the Soviet Union. The idea that the United States and the Soviet Union can live together despite their threatening nuclear arsenals and that they can Uh, basically live in an arrangement, peaceful coexistence, so to speak. And then finally, toward the end of the year, um, Nixon and Kissinger would negotiate um, an agreement to end America's involvement in Vietnam. All of this would lead to the landslide victory of Richard Nixon in 1972. And in a way, the politics of foreign policy are central to understanding, I think, the first uh, term of Richard Nixon. Nixon didn't want to give that up. Um, Nixon and Kissinger had uh, both a, a great deal of cooperation but they also were very competitive rivals. Uh, they weren't always the best, they weren't really friends in any, in any real meaningful sense of the word. Um, and, but Nixon wanted to keep Kissinger doing things in foreign policy to enhance his political standing in the second term but Watergate got in the way and Watergate ultimately destroyed Nixon's political effectiveness. And it essentially led to the rise of Kissinger, to the point where Kissinger exercised almost full presidential power for a time. And this was the period of time in which he was uh, uh, voted or seen in most polls as one of the most admired men in America, He, he enjoyed an incredible stature, which I documented part through his presence in the media, particularly the television news media of that time, which can be studied uniquely at Vanderbilt because of the presence of the TV news archive and our recordings of the TV news at a time in which the three networks were the dominant news source for the American people and seen not as they sometimes are today as partisan, but seen as an objective way of understanding America's role in the world. Kissinger was at the height of his popularity at that time before Nixon's resignation in Watergate, uh, the most admired American, and this is the period of time in which he makes one of his most fundamental contributions to American foreign policy by his negotiations and shuttle diplomacy in the Middle East. Uh, This is a really remarkable uh, exercise in diplomacy. Uh, Kissinger, in many respects, was carrying out his own foreign policy here and trying to settle conflict between Israel and Egypt and Israel and Syria particularly, and to, in a way, create a basis of stability in the Middle East. And in many respects, despite everything that's happened in the Middle East since, the basis of Uh, that negotiation, particularly the agreement with Israel and Egypt, has lasted to this day and has been central to um, taking the Middle East away from being a source for possible uh, superpower conflict. Um, Kissinger's last two years in office when he served Gerald Ford were not as successful. Um, In fact, uh, Kissinger faced a much more hostile domestic political environment. Uh, Gerald Ford uh, uh, faced a much more difficult Congress. During the period 1975, Vietnam collapsed. The peace settlement that Kissinger and Nixon had negotiated collapsed uh, when South Vietnam fell to a North Vietnamese invasion. The Middle East peace process stalled for a time. Uh, The Soviet Union seemed more adventurous, sending uh, uh, or using Cuban troops to take power in Angola. Um, Kissinger found himself under attack from both the left and the right in his final two years in office. Um, And he made the argument. He tried to make an argument for a more nuanced American foreign policy. In some ways, although he understood the politics of American foreign policy, Kissinger started to tell Americans that they needed to understand foreign policy differently from the ways in which it was seen, the idealistic and sometimes moralistic ways in which it was conceived. Um, in a speech he gave in 1975, he said, today we find, like most other nations in history, we can neither escape from the world nor dominate it. Today, we must conduct diplomacy with subtlety, flexibility, maneuver, and imagination in pursuit of our interests. We must be thoughtful in defining our interests. We must prepare against the worst contingency and not only plan for the best. We must pursue limited objectives and many objectives simultaneously. Uh, Kissinger, in, in one of the arguments of the book, Kissinger came to understand some of the, the limits on American power and he came to understand some of the difficulties of the ways in which American foreign policy became a political uh, issue in domestic politics and tried to, in a sense, almost educate Americans to a different understanding of foreign policy. He did not succeed in that, um, even though his foreign policy in many respects remained relatively popular up until he left office, even though uh, Gerald Ford did lose the election of 1976 quite narrowly. Interestingly, I make a case that there was almost a type of contradiction in Kissinger's own arguments about foreign policy. Much as he came to appreciate the limits of power, he himself was something of an example or symbolic example of uh, American exceptionalism itself. Um, His rise from being an immigrant to a a refugee uh, to the heights of power was an extraordinary story. And Kissinger looked for new avenues of ways in which the United States could play a significant role in foreign policy around the world, so much so that toward the end of the Ford administration, he was trying to settle the South African, uh, the Zimbabwe and Rhodesian uh, issues um, after having worked in the Middle East. Um, he left office in 1977. He was only 53 years old. No one would have predicted that he did not go back into office, but Kissinger's own ambition and power was such that no president, particularly Republican presidents, would really dare to bring him back for fear of being overshadowed by him. So he became something more of an advisor to presidents uh, from Jimmy Carter on, offering his insight and perspective in policy um, and then set up a business consortium, made millions of dollars, has been involved in commenting on American foreign policy since that time. And at age 97 um, in April, wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal about the impact of COVID-19 on American, uh, on, on international relations. So he's had an incredibly long and, and significant career, and I think he's come both to symbolize and uh, exercise American uh, power, and that's essentially why or I titled the book as I did.
0: Well, that's, that's terrific. It's uh, a fascinating read. Um, I'm not completely through it, but uh, uh, I've this past week, I knocked out a considerable portion of it. I'm looking forward to getting through the rest of it. Uh, Tom, talk to us a little bit about uh, Kissinger's uh, background. Uh, I didn't I didn't realize it. Um, I, I knew he had fled Nazi Germany yes. in the 30s uh, at age 15. Uh, but he went back to Germany during World War II, and and uh, he was in the U.S. Army there. Give us a, a little bit of the connect the dots between um, young Kissinger and, and uh, becoming of age and, and how he got to be the, the man that he was. Yeah, It's a, it's
1: a, it's a fascinating story. And in some ways, it's, it's, it's also uh, very symbolic of America's rise to world power. Here's a man who comes, he, is, he, he has to flee, his family has to flee in 1938. Uh, they get out at a time before the worst um, happens. Um, he and his brother, uh, father and mother all come to New York City. They Uh, move into Manhattan, uh, part of Manhattan that was dominated by German-Jewish refugees. Uh, But in in many respects, it's a very closeted uh, uh, immigrant community, and uh, Kissinger's greatest ambition is to go to City College and become an accountant. Then he's drafted, and this is an experience that uh, one sees in a lot of biographies, particularly of American men, although also of American women during this time, of which the, the, the act of going into military service expands their horizons, changes their lives, and going into the military service tr- tr- fundamentally transformed Kissinger's life. He got opportunities of military service. After all, uh, the United States needed people who could speak German. They needed people who could be loyal and German Jews were a loyal group um, and, to the United States, uh, and Kissinger was became a, uh, uh, at first was in the army, but then was, was brought into counterintelligence to be able to deal with uh, the possibility that Americans saw of Nazi sabotage, or Gestapo behind the lines treatment. He, he went in, he was, um, uh, he, he did not see combat directly, but was in dangerous areas during particularly the Battle of the Bulge. And mm-hmm. Kissinger as a Jew was vulnerable, if he had been captured, he would have been executed by the Nazis. As a, as a traitor as they would have seen it. Um, and he played a role then uh, when Germany was finally defeated. Uh, Kissinger was initially put in charge of uh, local responsibilities in Kreifold and then later um, in uh, um, another German city, he was put in charge of the occupation and he actually had command authority at the age of 24, 25 years old, a really pretty uh, heady, or actually at the age of 23, Kissinger was in charge of a German city of Benzum. So, he was he
0: was a uh, he was a private in the army, and, and he had yes. responsibility for a city. He had Well, he
1: was he also he spoke German. He knew how to deal with Germans. Um, he uh, was considered. Uh, he was in the counterintelligence corps. He rounded up Gestapo uh, agents, and um, he handled the, the the administration of the city. Uh, It was really quite remarkable, and uh, Kissinger also, I I mean, and this is something, uh, because I do say critical things about Kissinger, but I think this is one of the areas, I mean, Kissinger also liberated a concentration camp, so he saw what had happened uh, to his people, to his friends. He he saw some of the people that he had gone to school with um, uh, who had just survived the the Holocaust, Um, but Kissinger uh, Kissinger had, uh, surprisingly for all that he went through, a relatively... uh, uh, he was he was generous in his dealings with the Germans, much more than many might have expected. And he, he did not want. He told them his father, who kept saying, "You got to be hard with the Germans. You got to be tough." He should. And then this, he said, "Look, we're not here to. We're not going to cause another war by uh, creating a situation where we mistreat them. We have to treat them fairly. We have to treat, We have to try and build a democracy." And I think in that sense, he was uh, he was all that was positive about the American military presence in Germany after World War II.
0: So fast forward, uh, you know, he goes, he goes to City College, uh, uh, he gets his various degrees, he, he moves up the uh, academic uh, ladder, and then he gets connected with uh, Nelson Rockefeller. Okay, I,
1: I should actually uh, you, he 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 comes back. One of his great mentors, Fritz Kramer. Please, please, please do
0: fill in the blanks there. I didn't mean to make that.
1: That's right. um one of his great mentors, Fritz Kramer. Um, who has a significant role also as a Defense Department figure later, another former German um, emigre, uh, tells him, gentlemen, don't go to City College. He's got to go to Harvard. He tells him, you've got to go to Harvard. You have that potential. He sees that in Kissinger and Kissinger applies and goes on the GI Bill and scholarships to Harvard. And he is a a part of that generation of American uh, soldiers who came back and went into higher education uh, got their university degrees, the great expansion of American education that takes place during that time. Uh, Kissinger gets his degree, um, he's in the class of 1950. He writes the longest thesis in Harvard's history, uh, some 300 pages with a thesis title, what is history or the meaning of history, I should say, um, which gives you some idea of his ambitions and his intellectual scope. Um, he uh, uh, is accepted into what Harvard calls the government department, what at other places might be called political science. Um, He goes for a political uh, science PhD, but at the same time, he's also expanding his horizons. Um, uh, uh, His other mentor at Harvard, uh, Bill Elliott, who was a former Vanderbilt uh, graduate, um, a Harvard professor of government, uh, encourages him to set up an international seminar, which brings over from Europe originally, but then from all over the world, uh, leading young people who are seen as, as headed toward leadership in their countries in all different fields, academia, journalism, politics, uh, to Harvard for the summer. And Kissinger becomes the, the head of the international seminar and creates in some ways a network of, of people around the world who know him and know of his work. Um, and Kissinger also sets up a journal that's also widely read. Uh, this brings him to a certain prominence. He gets an article published in the main journal of Foreign Affairs. Uh, This brings him to the attention of Nelson Rockefeller, a very ambitious and extraordinarily wealthy uh, figure who is interested in creating, you might say, the basis for a presidential candidacy. And Kissinger becomes a key advisor to Rockefeller, and that relationship will go on uh, for the rest of his life, although particularly in Rockefeller's three presidential uh, campaigns in 1960, 64, and finally in 68, uh, Kissinger will be his central advisor at the same time as Kissinger becomes a uh, renowned professor um, at Harvard during this period.
0: We, um, we've got a lot of questions starting to pile in here, but let me ask just okay. a, a couple, a couple okay. more uh, questions of you and, and then we'll turn to some of those uh, questions from our, our audience. Um, you, you talked in the book about uh, Kissinger and the electronic media and yes. yeah. the development of a mythical, Personality, you know, we we've advanced. I think we're in media, uh, electronic media personalities 5.0 by now. But uh, was was he was he kind of a uh, trendsetter in that regard?
1: In many respects, he was. He's, I would argue, he was the first real celebrity diplomat. I mean, he was someone who knew how to uh, nourish, how to flatter, how to cajole, how to deal with journalists, both of the newspapers and television journalists. He developed relationships with journalists. He spent a lot of time, both as National Security Advisor and Secretary of State, explaining American foreign policy, arguing for it, leaking um, information to these journalists. Um, And he cultivated a reputation with the press that was so different from that of his boss, Richard Nixon, who really despised the press and the media. And in many respects, Kissinger benefited from that. Uh, Kissinger was seen as the was was given extraordinarily favorable publicity. And and one thing that one does get from from studying the TV news archive is just how favorably journalists treated Kissinger during this period and how he uh, became seen as something almost larger than life during this time as the man who really had in his, his hands American foreign policy, was giving it direction, was giving it purpose. And in many respects, I think this contributed greatly to the sort of power he was able to exercise.
0: How did he separate himself from Nixon in that regard? Because the, the media loathed Nixon.
1: Right. Well, they loathed Nixon and, and Kissinger, uh, Kissinger played a rather careful game uh, of at the same time uh, saying things that seemed to be loyal to Nixon, but at the same time also cultivating these relationships with the media otherwise. Um, and he didn't badmouth Nixon necessarily, there were, although there were a couple of cases where he did Say things about the president that could have co- could have caused him a great diff- great deal of difficulty, uh, but I think I think journalists were taken with Kissinger. He was a Harvard professor. He was this brilliant man, and they they were somewhat in awe of him. Many of the journalists had gone to Ivy League schools. They had a certain uh, 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 deference to professors like Kissinger, and Kissinger knew Kissinger an extraordinarily both charming person with a with a great. Uh, self deprecating wit that was very effective often and um he he uh is extremely intelligent i think that worked very well with the journalists that he dealt with and uh allowed him in a way to separate himself from nixon
0: now um you've you've mentioned a couple of times that uh he was seen in different lights from from different perspectives. And I think the quote that sticks out, uh, I think this was from your introduction. Over the past six decades, Henry Kissinger has been one of the most, America's most lavishly praised and most reviled public figures. Mm -hmm. Was was he a brilliant master strategist, the 20th century's greatest 19th century statesman? I love that, Robert Kaplan, of course. Mm -hmm. Or a cold blooded monster, who eroded America's moral standing for the sake of self-promotion? I, I won't ask you how how you come out on that unless you want to volunteer that. But um, tell us about that that dichotomy. Well, I mean, obviously there there were people. He he was such a, a larger than life figure in terms of the foreign policy triumphs and challenges that he oversaw that, depending on where you where you stood on those issues, you might come down differently. But uh, tell us what you think about that. Well, I do, think, I do think
1: there's a, uh, Kissinger often talked about the, uh, uh, the Greek goddess nemesis uh, who answered people's prayers more fully uh, than they realized. And, and in a way, Kissinger personalized foreign policy and he gave himself or he gave off the impression that he had everything under control and that everything was done with a purpose. And in a way, I think he's been the author of some of the degree to which people um, hold him responsible for everything bad that happened, as well as the achievements of this era. And there were lots of controversial um, uh, decisions by Nixon and Kissinger. Uh, The decision to uh, undermine a democratically elected government in Chile, because it was a Marxist orientation. Uh, uh, The decision to back Pakistan in the Indo-Pakistani war in 1971, even though Pakistan was carrying out horrific massacres in Bangladesh, some of these decisions really Uh, were were, Kissinger's role was not as consequential as he later painted it to be, uh, but he is, of course, uh, the body count is often uh, given to him as though he should have been able to stop them. Um, And I think uh, Kissinger uh, Kissinger and Nixon were engaged in what were often controversial moves in foreign policy. Uh, They did argue that the United States should judge other countries by their behavior externally, not how they treated their own people. This was part of the argument. When Nixon went to China, uh, China in 1972 was a horrific human rights violator, but the the discussion of human rights didn't come up at all. And the American people really didn't care. What they cared about was getting out of Vietnam and they saw Nixon dealing with Mao as an unaltered, uh, as a a good. They didn't really care about that issue. Um, Over time, of course, these issues, some of these issues have, of course, acquired much greater importance and I think Kissinger's approach and that has become far more controversial. And uh, he remains a sort of lightning rod for almost everything uh, connected to Cold War behavior by the United States, whether he was responsible for it or not.
0: You mentioned uh, Vietnam. He shared the uh, Nobel Peace Prize with Lido Co, um over the Paris uh, Peace uh, Convention uh, that ended America's involvement in, in uh, Vietnam. He seemed to be, not enamored with the award though. He gave the, uh, the sum uh, to charity and later offered to give back the actual medal. Uh, tell us a little bit about that episode.
1: Well, Kissinger did receive it. Um, there was a time, the, the, the Vietnam peace agreement was deeply flawed, uh, flawed in so many respects. Um, the United States effectively was simply trying to get out of Vietnam at that time and get its prisoners back. Uh, North Vietnamese soldiers were allowed to remain in South Vietnam, despite uh, that, uh, the agreement. Um, in many respects, uh, the agreement was more a pause in the war, a very brief pause in the war, rather than a real settlement. Uh, for a time, it seemed that uh, people thought it might be working, it might, might actually uh, accomplish this, but uh, by 1975, the North Vietnamese restarted their military offensives and uh, conquered South Vietnam. The result is that I think Kissinger felt, uh, Kissinger always blamed, tended to blame Congress for this. I I think that's an unfair designation on his part. The agreement itself was more designed for its political significance than for uh, any sort of lasting nature. Uh, I don't think Kissinger thought we were going to get peace in Vietnam, even though I think um, uh, he wasn't, he wasn't, he still believed uh, that it would be better if South Vietnam had survived. All of that said, I think uh, Kissinger's uh, return of the uh, uh, money and the rest was was all uh, a reflection of this view. Uh, Kissinger, if, if he had received the Nobel Peace Prize for his work in the Middle East, it would have been far more justified because I think there he actually did accomplish something that was much more lasting and permanent.
0: Let me ask you about the uh, opening to China. Um... In contemporary times, we've had the current Secretary of State give a landmark speech at the Nixon Library talking about the the opening of China. As you know, Secretary of State Pompeo has been uh, very uh, vocal in his condemnations of this and that about the Chinese Communist Party and and China. Uh, But at the Nixon Library, of all places, coincidentally, um, he said that the 50 years of uh, the opening with China was uh, was mistaken. Uh, that uh, he believes it was a mistake, and uh, that you know by reflection he he, he tried to uh, soft shoe his criticism of Nixon uh, and by extension uh, Kissinger. What what would Henry Kissinger say, in your assessment, to those sorts of criticisms that 50 looking back 50 years it was it was wrong to open uh, open relations with China the way we did
1: well it, this is fascinating I mean it's fascinating in a sense that Kissinger has lived long enough to be criticized on the one hand for being an anti-communist and, and uh, uh, wanting the war in Vietnam against uh, Chinese expansionism and then yet at the same time now being criticized for having opened China having gone to China at the time um, I think this is this is bad history on Pompeo's part it's not It's not wrong to say that Kissinger has been among those in the American establishment, foreign policy establishment, who believe that uh, economic growth and transformation would eventually yield a more uh, amenable China. I mean, Kissinger may may not have been as optimistic as some because he's not necessarily the biggest proponent of democratization, but I think he did believe that economic interchange between the United States and China would, on the whole, bring a better world. And you could make the case that certainly in when he went to China in 1972, uh, the opening to China was a significant development in in, in helping the United States in the Cold War, because it put China in effect, in an almost de facto alliance with the United States against the Soviet Union. You can't forget that the Soviet Union and China had fought battles, actual military battles along their border. And so the United States was in a sense playing off China and the Soviet Union. And ultimately, that sense of isolation that the Soviet Union was in was one of the factors. I think I think that ultimately led to the rise of Mikhail Gorbachev and to the change in Soviet foreign policy. That the isolation that they uh, encountered. So I, I think it's it's wrong of Pompeo to see the entire period as a 50-year period of appeasement in some way of Chinese of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, that is, is oversimplifies the history terribly.
0: Let's uh, turn to some questions here. Uh, we've got uh, a lot of terrific questions from, uh, from our audience. Uh, let me start with uh, this from uh, Kangji Chen, uh, who asks, uh, he says, Kissinger was an expert on diplomacy and international relations. He was a professor and an intellectual at Harvard before his rise to power, um, being in charge of foreign policy. Was that a, a pattern in American history or was Kissinger like uh, an exception, uh, exception to that rule? Uh, can you reflect on, on where Harvard historians uh, wind up besides at Vanderbilt? <laughs>
1: well, I, I think this is another aspect um, where, the, uh, uh, where you're really seeing a, a transformation or a change um, in American foreign policy with the development of the, you might say, the defense intellectual. Uh, Kissinger is part of a larger breed of intellectuals after World War II who go into government. Um, There is a connection. Um, Jeremy Suri, a really renowned historian in Texas, has talked about the Cold War University. And there was in the 1950s this sense um, of universities as being in league with Washington to help win the Cold War, or at least to help American foreign policy. And this is a, a product in part of the patriotic And and somewhat uh, nationalist, or at least the the, uh, certainly patriotic, I think probably the best way of seeing it, uh, that had come out of World War II. That we were all on this side and we were trying to deal with the Soviet Union. Kissinger's part of that larger group of defense intellectuals. Um, He uh, he was not, most of these intellectuals uh, we would have thought of, uh, particularly say the best and the brightest, many of those who went down to Washington during the Kennedy years. Uh, Kissinger was always, Kissinger tied his uh, fortunes to a liberal Republican in Nelson Rockefeller. And so even though he did play a a minor role in the Kennedy and Johnson administrations, um, he was still identified more with the Republican Party and so got his opportunity when Nixon came into power in 1969. Uh, But Conjure's question, uh, uh, he is one of my graduate students who I'm very happy and hope will be able to come back from China at some point to, to study, Um, His question gets at, I think, what is a larger development in American foreign policy of the tapping of intellectuals um, for foreign policy in the post-war period.
0: Let's turn to a question from Ambassador John Kornblum, uh, who asks, was Kissinger too European for America? He created a brilliant diplomatic strategy, but ultimately stumbled on his inability to relate to American domestic policy, especially human rights. He stumbled on Chile and South Africa and led Gerald Ford to claim that Poland was not a communist party or a communist uh, dictatorship. Uh, did he have a tenure on American idealism? I'm not sure you could blame the Poland thing on Kissinger, but, but go ahead. Uh, did he, did well, he have a year on the American domestic politics know. and idealism?
1: I do think I, I know that criticism is often made, um, and th- there's a justice to it in the sense that I think on in, in 1976 Kissinger was attacked both from the right as being insufficiently anti-communist, which is part of the whole argument about the Eastern Europe that uh, Gerald Ford got stuck in in the debate. Uh, he was also criticized, of course, on the left from being uh, uh, insufficiently uh, concerned with human rights. Intriguingly so, though, if you look at public opinion polls, his foreign policy approach still achieved majority support to the extent that he had a 10-year, his problem was that political parties often organize, uh, the activists who organize in political parties are often more concerned with issues like anti-communism in the case of the Republicans or human rights in the case of the Democrats. And so Kissinger's attempt to say, well, we've got to balance these things out or we've got to be concerned the national interest, it's a kind of centrist uh, foreign policy, a realist a realist foreign policy that doesn't necessarily attract voters uh, who are more passionate. But it did achieve um, what was a larger approval among the public. And the irony is that Jimmy Carter, although he does do certain things different, carries through many of the same uh, proposals that. Uh, Henry Kissinger had been pushing assault to agreement, the Panama Canal Treaty, um, some of these other issues, and so that uh, it, I think I, I would I would make the case that sometimes uh, in a way the 1976 uh, election has been overinterpreted as a repudiation of Kissinger's understanding of domestic politics.
0: We have a couple of questions from uh, Facebook Live. I'm glad to see that's working. Our overflow room, and uh, in in our Facebook Live audience, uh, Breck Walker. Uh, an, another student of yours, is that right? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, well, he's he's concerned about grades. He wants to know what grade <laughs> uh, we, you've already given uh, Secretary Pompeo. Uh, I guess a C minus for his history, but uh, uh, Breck wants to know uh, what uh, Dr. Walker would like to know. What grade you would give uh, Kissinger as National Security Advisor and Secretary of State in in your uh, position as a professor of history of American foreign policy?
1: Oh, wow. Um, as always, Breck asks great questions. Um, that uh, was always a characteristic and tough questions to answer. I, I come down more positively on Kissinger than most in the sense of seeing at least the, uh, the, the value of a of, of part of his larger approach, especially given the circumstances of a country that did not want Uh, the type of foreign policy engagement that had got it into Vietnam. Kissinger and Nixon, but Kissinger also, even after Nixon, were dealing with a situation in which the public opinion in the United States did not want American global involvement in the same manner in which uh, President Kennedy could make a, a speech calling for us to pay any price and bear any burden in the pursuit of liberty. Kissinger managed uh, even under that environment, to position the United States, I think, quite effectively in the Middle East and Europe and to carry out successful negotiations with the Soviet Union and China. I take issue with his policies on Chile, on the on, uh, on Indo-Pakistan, and a couple of other areas where I think he was uh, not effective, so I probably would give him a generous B+. Plus.
0: Okay. Uh, Breck has a follow-up here. And um, let me mention that uh, Dr. Breck Walker and Ambassador Dick Bowers and I on Wednesday afternoons at 1 p.m. do a program called the Global News Review. So please uh, join us for that tomorrow. Uh, Dr. Walker asks, uh, Nixon also liked the spotlight and did not like to be outshone. Why did he take to Kissinger? And uh, why did their partnership work out so well from their respective perspectives?
1: Um, that's a great question. Again, um, the interesting thing is, I think Nixon saw great benefit in using Kissinger. Um, Kissinger could not be a political rival to him. Um, Kissinger was brilliant and could do and handle the detail. He could not be a political rival because he couldn't run for president. Um, he was born in Germany, so he couldn't run for president. And even the, at the negotiations in China in 1972, Zhou Lai brings that up sort of brings up the fact that Kissinger can't be a rival to Nixon, and that's why they, they, they sort of thought that he could represent the president very effectively. And in a way, uh, Nixon builds up Kissinger, especially after they have success. And so when Watergate hits, uh, Nixon decides to absolve Kissinger of any involvement in the wiretaps and other things that might've gotten Kissinger into more difficulty because he wants Kissinger to continue carrying out the successful foreign policy that he thinks the Congress will never impeach him over. Um, He thinks that Congress would never uh, initially impeach him to get Spiro Agnew, and then later he thinks they won't impeach him to have Gerald Ford, who they won't think of as competent enough to take the policy. And so he builds up Kissinger um, in the Middle East. He praises him for his disengagement agreements. And so even though he didn't like to share the spotlight, he ends up contributing to Kissinger's fame and fortune in many respects.
0: Hmm. Here's a question uh, from James Cannon. He asks uh, that given Kissinger's ego and popularity, why did he never run for a political office such as the US Senate? Obviously, uh, being German by birth, he couldn't run for the presidency. But what about other offices?
1: He did think seriously about a Senate seat in New York. um, And I think if Jacob Javits had uh, decided not to run in 1980, Kissinger might likely have jumped in at that time. He was Giving it serious consideration, but Javits was very much the same political profile um, as Kissinger, a liberal Republican, and um, New York would have been the only state uh, that I think Kissinger could have had effect uh, could have been effective in. New York, as we know, likes to nominate people who. who are powerful and, and doesn't particularly care whether they live there very long or not. Uh, Hillary Clinton comes to mind. Um, that, that's one of the things about Bobby, New York. Bobby Kennedy. Bobby Kennedy, Hillary Clinton. I mean, it is it is a feature of, of New York state politics. Um, he did consider it. Um, he actually even considered running for governor in 1996, which would have been terrible because he, he's not the governor type. But he did he did briefly consider political elements, but he was never... I think he was never as drawn to it, um, uh, particularly of the direct political involvement as much as he enjoyed exercising the power that came from um, his role as Secretary of State or as an advisor.
0: We have uh, one, one question on the ideological, in, in the more ideological times of the last 20 years, do Kissinger's real politic ideas still have influence and support in the corridors of power? I think
1: they do. I think they do, and in many respects, um, take away some of the rhetoric uh, and some of the bombastity and some of the Trump policies, especially the argument that we should be dealing with Putin and we should accept or be, uh, have a good relationship with Russia, um, are somewhat Kissingerian. Um, Kissinger has supposedly been involved in uh, giving some advice to Jared Kushner about politics in the Middle East and the idea that the United States should pursue a policy um, of a realpolitik in the Middle East that prioritizes Israel um, and Israel because as, its, as a powerful ally. Um, I do think, I, I, I do think the, the policy, some of the policies Kissinger advocated and certainly as we get into an era, uh, regardless of who wins the presidential race, as we get into an era in which we're talking more about great power competition, I think some of the issues that Kissinger raises about how countries can balance their um, moral and idealistic beliefs with their interests, their national interests in dealing with countries with very different governments, will continue to be uh, issues in American foreign policy, dealing with uh, uh, resurgent Russia and a revisionist China as well. So,
0: A, uh, a corollary to that is, uh, in today's domestic climate, do you think anybody could ever uh somebody uh, become a Kissinger-like figure in the government?
1: I think it's very difficult. Um, uh, Kissinger in uh, Kissinger's rise was in many ways unique. And one of the, the points I made, and I, I briefly mentioned uh, earlier, is that because Kissinger became what he did, no one would go near him after 1976 in terms of appointing him again to a significant public policy position. And I think that that idea that someone could Uh, develop that type of uh, reputation and become so powerful uh, was one of the backlashes against that. And I don't think, I think it would be very hard now uh, for a political or an academic figure to attain that type of influence and power uh, over foreign policy uh, uh, in the United States government today.
0: And uh, let's let's take one more from the audience here, and then uh, you and I will wrap up. Uh, David Shagru uh, asks, uh, "Do you think Kissinger's reputation today is tainted by his strong link to Nixon?"
1: Yes, yes. Um, uh, Kissinger, the, the the Nixon tie, even though Kissinger himself has become much more favorably disposed in talking about Nixon. Uh, Kissinger was actually a source for one of the Woodward and Bernstein books, The Final Days, which is very harsh about Nixon. Um, Kissinger uh, has changed his tune, though, on Nixon to much more sympathetic. But I do think that uh, Nixon's resignation, the sense that uh, Nixon dishonored the presidency, does hurt Kissinger's uh, overall reputation, even though, of course, Kissinger has had plenty of time to, of course, uh, be involved in other matters as well.
0: Um, and... We have uh, one more question uh, from from the audience. Uh, you seem to come down in the middle with your your grade of B compared to some others. Uh, um, talk a little bit more about your assessment. You you met him in in the mm-hmm. conduct of uh, of writing the book, um, and he. I think the only recounting I, I saw was that he asked you a question before yes. you got any questions. Tell us a little bit about yeah. that. Well, it was it was
1: interesting. Um, it, it's hard to s- see Kissinger, and I had a particular problem because I was a uh, um, uh, uh, I was a uh, uh, a student, a former student of one of his rivals at Harvard, and so he wasn't really interested in seeing me for a long time. Finally, uh, uh, I, I sort of, I think persistence paid off, as well as the intervention of some friends uh, with him. Um, And uh, it was a difficult, it was a somewhat difficult interview at first. Kissinger is extremely smart um, and difficult uh, when he doesn't want to answer a question. Uh, But over time, uh, over the the period we spent, about an hour, um, he did did talk uh, more about some issues, nothing that he's not written. And in a way, I didn't see the interview as an opportunity to learn anything particularly new as much as to get just a sense of the man. And I did get a sense of both his charm, his strength, uh, his nastiness at times, and his uh, um, uh, his intelligence. And I think uh, 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 that all was helpful in writing the book and having a sense of the, the different faces of this man, the different elements in, in his style and approach. And um, it did uh, give me an insight, uh, but I would not uh, by any means say that I've got uh, that uh, uh, I, I had the opportunity to have extensive talks. Kissinger has his own biographer, and is uh, that that uh, cooperating with that? This is uh, very much an unauthorized. It is a political biography focused on his policies, and not necessarily on his uh, personality and uh, personal life.
0: Was he skeptical of the of your approach? Yes.
1: Yeah. He, as I, as I mentioned at the beginning, he said. When I told him I was writing a short and concise book, he said, "Well, you will leave things out <laughs> and i i I know that I have left things out, um even though the book is not short and concise anymore it's it's longer i hope it's it's still uh, it still gets at the points I wanted to make, but it um I had to edit uh, considerably um, it, trying to write about everything Kissinger was involved in, including uh, all of the documentation, the tapes would have made for a, a multi volume biography, which I at one point did propose to my publisher and got shot down rather quickly that they did not want a multi volume, they wanted a single volume. And that did require me to leave things out. So.
0: Well, it's, it's a tremendous book. It's uh, very highly readable, and uh, I'm enjoying it and will enjoy finishing it. Any, uh, any closing comments, uh, Tom? Any, um, you, you've, been, you've been working on this project a while. It must feel good to be done with it. Um,
1: I have been working for it a long time. My kids grew up with it. Um, they, they uh, from earliest memories, knew their dad was working on Kissinger. Um, my family has been very supportive in Rochester, and my friends in Boston and others who have uh, put me up at times when I did the research. And uh, I have friends uh, who've heard me talk about this for ad infinitum. And I, I thank them all. I, I'm sure I've forgotten people, or I didn't thank them enough. And it is a problem when you finish a book like this, you, you sort of wanna say thank you to everyone and, and tell them that they, they really, uh, uh, you, that they had faith in you and that you made it. Um, there were times I doubted it, I must say. Um, it was uh, difficult to get it into one volume and to get an argument that I thought was original and different from other Kissinger books. Um, I am grateful that I'm at Vanderbilt and had the chance to work the Television News Archive and had that source. Uh, but it was uh, it was challenging. I'm, I am very glad it's done. I'm glad uh, my my children can now see it as, as a finished product uh, and uh, all of that. And uh, I'm grateful, especially uh, to a lot of great Vanderbilt students along the way and research assistants as well, who played a role, who asked me questions about Kissinger and um, who uh, forced me to rethink issues about him. The book was very different from what it started. It it was going to be very much a Sort of look at sort of ideas of foreign policy and um, the dilemmas of American foreign policy and it really it, it changed over the years in part uh, from the interaction I've had with my graduate students and undergrads and uh, that's been a, a real uh, wonderful thing uh, in writing this. Well,
0: that's terrific. Again, congratulations on the book. Uh, if you haven't already ordered this, uh, run your fingers across your keyboards now and, and uh, get a copy of that order from Parnassus books.net, they will be happy to send you one or let you drive by their Green Hills, Nashville location to pick one up. And uh, I'm sure Dr. Schwartz will appreciate that when the check comes around uh, Christmas time. Uh, Tom, great, great book. I, uh, I'm really uh, glad that I had the chance chance to talk to you about, uh, about this tonight. And we look forward to uh, working with you on some more World Affairs Council uh, programs. That does it uh, for us tonight. Thank you all for coming. Uh, We had... uh we had quite a full room. Uh, I appreciate everybody uh, being with us tonight. Again, the Tennessee World Affairs Council is um, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization here in Nashville. We appreciate uh, your support by becoming a member or making a contribution uh, to what we try to do in terms of bringing global affairs awareness programs to our community. And again, uh, take a look at uh, our election 2020 programs. Go to tnwac.org slash calendar. You can see uh, the tremendous programs we have, ambassadors and potentates and uh, professors and and many others talking about the key issues of the day. So uh, we believe you will be informed and you will enjoy that. So take a look and uh, we will be back uh, for more tomorrow at 1 p.m. the Global News Review. Thanks again. Thanks, Professor Schwartz. It was great talking with you. Everybody have a good evening. Be safe.